One of the hallmarks of the early church as you read through the scriptures, through the book of Acts, even towards the end of the Gospels, but through the book of Acts, certainly as you read through the scriptures, one of the hallmarks that you will find is that almost immediately as, uh, as the church of Jesus Christ began and as uh, disciples were being made and churches were flourishing and the gospel was going across uh, into the known world at that time, one of the things you see almost immediately is that they had an immediate expectation, anticipation for the return of Christ. In fact, much of the language you read, uh, and we'll see some reasons why this morning, but much of the language you read is that they uh, carried with them this idea that almost immediately Christ was going to return to uh, set up his reign and rule on earth so that they could be with him forever. Out of that kind of expectation and anticipation uh, uh, came the word advent. It's based on a Latin word, but the word advent, the awaiting of the coming of Jesus Christ, the advent of Christ, the, uh, the uh, awaiting him to, to, to come to you. That's what that word means. And so, uh, so this tradition of advent uh, originally had an, an eye to the second return of Christ, I don't know if you know this or not. I found this interesting in my own, uh, just looking this week, is that uh, uh, the, uh, in the early church as well, they had a season of Advent, what they would call Advent, when someone was coming to be baptized. And I, I don't know that all the, I was thinking through this and I, don't, I didn't see the details, so there must have been some time when someone professed faith in Christ until they got baptized because there was a season of, it, it mentioned either 30 and sometimes I saw a 40-day period of time where the church family was praying and fasting for this new believer leading up to their baptism. It was, it was, the, it was looking to the coming of, uh, forward to the coming of, of their baptism, their, their entrance into their body, so to speak, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a more formal way, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure I understand all that, but that, that carried that theme of Advent. Around the Middle Ages, it began to be where the Advent was focused a lot more on the anticipation of the birth of Christ associated with the coming of Jesus as a little baby. And that's a lot of what our Advent traditions are based on now, is when you, have, uh, when you, when you go through Advent, uh, it's often those kind of things. And I, I don't, it's, I'm really interested in doing a hand raising necessarily, but I'm, in, I'm curious as to how many people here even, I've having some conversation, how many people here even know about Advent or think anything about Advent? Or, a, a number of years ago, I, I picture it in the old church building, so I don't know if it's happened since then or not, but we used to do some Advent kinds of things. Uh, I was talking with, with Heidi's family over Thanksgiving, and uh, Jerry, we, 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 we noted that Jerry, who used to do a lot of, I mean, years and years of worship leading, uh, we remember you, Jerry, leading some uh, Advent readings, leading us in some Advent uh, readings during the time of Advent. I don't remember it happening much since then, and probably that's my fault, because I think it's maybe since, uh, since I became senior pastor, I don't know if it was something you did, Glenn, or not, I have no idea. So some of you have, been, have experience with Advent tradition, some of you don't. I'm going to uh, lead us through an Advent series. And if you don't know anything about Advent, it's simply a, an, a time of anticipation, a time of eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus. Now, we're going to try to uh, sort of do a parallel track as we go through. I'm just going to say this up front. There's no, not like there's some kind of like aha moment coming down the road. Like up front, we're going to try to lay a parallel track between the Advent of Christ when he was born as a baby, and the advent of Christ when he's going to return as a conquering king. 
because both, I believe, are necessary. The same things that help us to lead us into, into eager expectation and anticipation of Christ's first coming, the same longing with which they had for the Messiah to come the first time is the same longing and expectation and desperate need we have of the Messiah to come again, of Jesus to return again. The themes we're going to pick up, there's a theme for each Sunday. The themes we're going to pick up are the same themes that we are to, uh, to be waiting expectantly with an eye to Jesus' second return. So this morning, the first uh, Sunday of Advent, the theme is hope. So this morning, our, our, our text and our, our, our sermon time together will be focused on the hope that comes with the advent of Jesus, the hope that is ours, the hope that is kindled in us, the hope with, that we have, the hopes that we have for Jesus to come. Now, to capture the first track of the advent of Christ coming as a baby, probably for most of us it is most helpful to think back to the kind of scenarios that might have been there or to try to imagine what it must be like to have a Christless existence, to not have had the Messiah yet, to not be able to read the pages of the New Testament that you and I are so familiar with. I hope so. To not have the good news of the fulfillment of those prophecies that refer to Jesus and his coming. This morning, I'm going to take us to a text. It's Psalm 80, so I hope you have the Bible with you now, and, and you'll open it and, and read along with me to Psalm 80. And even in this, I find myself, I'm, I'm reading through, and the psalm itself has a note at the beginning that says, to the choir master, it was a song of some kind, according to Lilies, which is the tune it was supposed to have been sung to, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. And when you think about this man, Asaph, he's a guy that lived at the same time David did. And one of the things I found myself wondering was why, when if it's a psalm that Asaph wrote, that's how I interpreted that initially, is that there's a psalm of Asaph, it's a psalm that Asaph wrote, then why are these themes that we're going to find present in the psalm today here? Because when, when Asaph was around and leading the, leading the worship time in the temple with the King David, uh, there, you're not going to find evidence of the things that are talked about here. What I found is I, as I was uh, looking into the, the history or looking into what people said about this psalm this week is that uh, when it says of Asaph, it, it just means it's of the line. It's of the person who played the role of Asaph. And this psalm was most likely written uh, during the days of Jeremiah when the people of Israel were partially under exile and the kingdom was crumbling around them and there was trouble all around. And then suddenly this psalm makes a lot more sense. And it also sets the stage for the longing, for the deep desire, for the hope that we have that God is going to change the outcome of what the story has been so far. Read with me in Psalm chapter 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And I'm going to pause for a moment there as we look at those first three verses because I want us to see right away that our hope has only one direction to go. 
Our hope has only one avenue, one area to go to really find hope. Look at how they start off. They say, give ear to who? They looking around, are they looking to their king? Are they looking to the countries around them? Are they looking to themselves? Are they looking to the things they have stored up? Are they looking to their own talents? Are they looking to, where are they looking? Where's their hope gonna come from? You, God, shepherd of Israel, the one who leads Joseph like a flock, the one who's enthroned upon high, that line about before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, those are the three tribes that came right behind the, 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 uh, the ark when the, when the children of Israel were moving through uh, the wilderness. Those three tribes came right behind the ark, the testimony of the Lord. You, God, so we just have to begin right there. Our hope has only one direction to find its fulfillment or to find any room for any hope to even be there. It's you, God. You stir up your might and come to save us. You shine forth. You restore us, God. You let your face shine upon us so that we may be saved. Now, there's a whole bunch of things all wrapped up in there that we, maybe we'll leave some things as we go along, but a whole bunch of things there. I want to look at that word restore for a little bit. Restore us, God. That word restore is the Hebrew word shub, which means to turn back or to turn around or to return. Now, it's most often used, or at least maybe I shouldn't, that's going to come out backwards. I don't want to say it that way. When the word repentance is used in the Old Testament, it's this word. That would fit better because it's not always used for repentance, but when repentance is used, it's always this word. So repentance is the turn back. And it's an interesting thing when you look at this phrase in here, restore us, O God. You may actually be reading a translation that is a lot more of a command. I'm asking God to turn us. Because depending on how the Hebrew is written or how it's read to us, it can either be a plea to God that we would be restored or it's him turning us. It's him turning us around. Now, if you look at the situation where this psalm was most likely written, they needed to be turned around, didn't they? They needed the situation to be turned around, but let's just, let's just put those things together because when we need our situations turned around, most often it's because we need to be turned around, right? Think of the culture around us. Think of the climate around us. Think of the United States of America. Think of the church in, Western, in the Western Hemisphere. We need God to turn us, don't we? But is it that God needs to turn the situation around or is it that God needs to turn us? It's us, isn't it? So when we're crying out for the hope that we have God, for God to save us, it's something that needs to happen in us. We need to be returned. We need to be turned around. We need to be restored. God, restore us. And look at the mechanism there. He says, let your face shine. It's as if he's promoting, he already used the word shine forth, let your face shine. It's as if when God turns and looks at you, when God looks at you and his gaze is upon you and he's shining upon you and you're turning to him, that is what turns us. That's what ch- changes where we're at. By the way, that's really true. That's why we, that's why we use, I use visuals up here all the time, like, like are we t- facing God or are we facing away from God? Because when God is facing us and we're facing him, That is what brings us to repentance. It is those things that turn us, and that's the hope that we're looking for. Come and save us, that we may be saved. Oh, come and save us. Now that tells you what the need is we have, right? We need to be saved. Once again, I find the reality, the difficulty 
the challenge of preaching the gospel to comfortable, well-equipped, well-off financially, well-established generations of, of believers. Trekking. I, these, are all, these aren't all bad things necessarily, but I find the challenge of preaching the gospel is real in those because, quite frankly, I'm not sure how often we are super convinced that we need to be saved. That if it were not for God shining upon us and his face shining upon us, that we would be so desperately lost. We talked about our Sunday school this morning. It's really easy for us, maybe not this word for it, but it's really easy for us to have sort of this, this sneering attitude, all those people that can't quite get it together out there, right? Which, of course, implies that we think we in here have it all together. Let's keep reading. Verse four. Oh, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our neighbors laugh among themselves. Restore us, O oh God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And I'm gonna stop there again because I don't know if you noticed, but verse seven is the same as verse three. So it provides a good stopping point. Here he's going to explain a bit more of the problem. He began by saying, we're looking to you, God, but here's where we are in desperate need. God, why are you angry with our prayers? Now visualize a group of people who have been assailed from all corners from the, from the outside world, and they're slowly being, being defeated, and, and people being hauled off, and they keep pressing in, and maybe perhaps, I depend on where it's at in this, this whole time, maybe they're even under siege currently, because it was a multi-year siege of Jerusalem that happened, and there's all kinds of pressures, and I'm sure there are some people within that city that are crying out to God and say, change the story, God. And they're feeling like God is angry with their prayers. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing, church today, 2022, Riverview, here's the thing. It's pretty easy for you and I to look at this text and to look at those, that situation and to say, well, we know. We know because we read Kings and Chronicles. We know why God has turned away from you, right? We know why. So it makes sense to us, or we want to actually say, we understand why God is not listening to your prayers anymore. The problem is, if you or I are in any situations today where we feel like our prayers are not being heard by God, or bouncing off the ceiling, or God is angry at our prayers, or he's feeding us, what does he say? Fed us the bread of tears. Are we willing to draw the same conclusion then? that perhaps someday or someone outside of us can look at our own lives individually as families, as a church, as a broader church, can look and say, you know, you're, you're complaining about why God isn't sending, answering your prayers, but we know why. We know why he's turned away. There's one difference in verse seven from verse three. He's broadened his phrase Verse three says, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse seven says, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. A recognition that God is the God of all people, right? 
And as we look around and as we uh, walk towards celebrating Christmas, we want to again acknowledge, just as if you were here for Sunday school, our Sunday school lesson led us into doing, to recognize that God is the God of hosts, that God is the God of all people, that when Jesus was sent, born of a manger, it was not just for the Jewish people. We would say, yeah, we understand that. It's also not just for us who are already believers. But Jesus was born in a manger in humble circumstances. The thing we're looking forward to celebrating here in about a month from now, not just for us, but for the, all the world, for all the people of the world. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine. This is the hope we have. God, that your face would shine back on us that we may be saved. Have we arrived yet to the place where we understand that that's our greatest need, that we need to be saved? That if we're not saved, it doesn't matter what else we have. It doesn't matter what other blessings we have. It doesn't matter what other things we have accomplished. It doesn't matter what other pedigrees we have if we're not saved. And we've lost it all. Those are Jesus' words, right? He said, what good does it do a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Let's keep reading. Now they're going to give us a history lesson. Verse 8. You, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And he says it again. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And here I think we begin to see our recognition of the situation that they're in. But I also see, if you're willing to look into these words with me, I also see there's a lot of similarities to how you and I might feel today as we look around us. Here we are, I think, I hope, we're doing as good as we can. We're, we want to serve Jesus as well as we can. And we look around and it just gets worse and worse and worse, right? We could say to God, God, you brought godly people over into this country. They established a nation. And they built it upon some premises that would allow it to flourish. And flourish it did. It's, it, it's, it's shade covered the mountains. Its branches went to all the places. Its roots went down deep. Why then have you broken down the walls? Why is the vine being uprooted? Why is the boar from the forest allowed to move it and ravage it? Why does all everything in the field come in and feed upon it? They've burned it with fire. Oh God, turn again. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Have regard for this people. We have a hope. That hope is to be saved. 
that hope is to be taken from the midst of devastation and to be brought into a place where the psalmist said, you lead me into green pastures. You make me lie down by still waters. You prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Let me ask you, church, is there still hope inside of you? It's going to be an empty Christmas if you go through all the motions and do all the celebrations and read all the scriptures you're supposed to read and do all the things you're supposed to do according to tradition. But there's no hope inside. There's no flickering flame that says, God, would you turn your face again to us? Would you shine upon us that we can be saved? You know, when Jeremiah, who, if this was written during those times when Jeremiah was writing, was speaking to the people around him, even as the world was crumbling around them. Here's what he said, and I felt like this cap, cap, encapsulated the hope that we have so well. He says this in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promises I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Looking for Jesus to come. The hope, the anticipation that Jesus, Messiah, would you come. But all of our hope rests in, I think, this phrase, which is at the beginning of that, those verses I read. This phrase, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promises that I made. I'm telling you, this is the foundation of our hope, of my hope and of your hope. We have no other place to put our foot upon and the, other than the fact that God will do what he has said he will do. Let me illustrate to you, because the gospel writers in the New Testament picked up on this. They took Jeremiah's words, and all the more words than just those words, but these, these words and the anticipation, the expectation, and Paul would write words like this in Galatians chapter 4. He would say, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Go to the next slide to get the rest of the verse there. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That longing, that anticipation, that hope, that eager awaiting, that God, when will you look upon us again? When will your face shine upon us again? When will we be saved? The writer of Galatians, Paul, says that happened when the time was right, when the days came, when the days were right, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law so that all of us who are under the law, look at this, might be redeemed. That's the word for salvation. God save us. That's the word. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption, or might receive adoption as sons. This, church, we have a far more glorious hope than even they had back then. Because we've seen some of those promises fulfilled, haven't we? We've seen some of those prophecies that God spoke of and said, this is going to happen. We've seen them come to light. So we have a reason to celebrate. We have a reason to, with anticipation and hope, and to, and to look back as we, look, as we celebrate Christmas, to look back and say, this is what it means. 
This is why I'm celebrating, because the hope that every human being has deep inside of themselves, that God will save them from their wickedness, from their eternal destiny away from him, that God has answered that just as he said he would when he sent Jesus Christ. Born of woman, born under the law, so that those of us who are under the law might be redeemed. This is the hope that we carry, the hope that we have. If we are celebrating anything else at Christmas, I would tell you it's misguided. If our greatest need is salvation, then the answer to that need was Jesus Christ being born as a little baby. It is to this we cling. Now, I should do this because I get carried away and I was forgetting about it, but when you do Advent, you light candles, and the first candle is the hope candle, and this morning, in honor of these words, I want to tell you that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ has already come. That light, Jesus was the light shining in darkness. The darkness didn't understand it. The darkness rejected it, but the light was there. I love candles in the sense that they give us this, this, this small, and sometimes our hope is overflowing, but sometimes it's just really small, isn't it? But it's there flickering. And as you contemplate, as you get ready to celebrate the holidays, you get ready to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, as you make all your preparations and this is not a rant about all the stuff we do, although we could probably be less busy. It would be good for us. We could spend less money. That would be good for us. We could be a lot more focused on the real reason. That would be good for us. But it's not a rant about that. I'm not trying to be curmudgeonly. I'm just trying to make sure you understand that the only reason you have to celebrate is the hope that the gospel gives to you for salvation. And therefore, celebrate it. That's hope realized. Now, the reason I could even ask you a question this morning about whether you've given up hope is because I wasn't asking that question from the sense of did Jesus come or didn't he come? Did Jesus accomplish salvation on the cross or didn't he? I would guess most of us, excuse me, would be pretty firm in that. But I would also guess that for many of us, we look at the world around us, we look at what's happening politically, we look at what's happening economically, we look at what's happening just people-wise, socially. We look at all the things that have gotten messed up and backwards and perverted and ugly. And That's why I can ask that question. Is there still hope in there somewhere? But the advent of Jesus... The hope that Jesus brought was not just to be born as a baby, to live a life. What he accomplished was to, was to save us, was to allow us to enter into a relationship, but we haven't experienced the full glory of that relationship, have we? Not yet. Oh, I hope there's glory in your relationship with Christ. Don't get me wrong. I hope there's, I hope there's peace and I hope there's, there's joy and I hope that hope, I'm using the word hope a lot, I'm expecting that that does its work inside of us. But we have not experienced the fullness of the glory of face-to-face, -face, full, intimate relationship with our Creator. Heaven is not here, is it? Please look around and you understand. Which means we're still waiting, aren't we? We're still waiting. Jesus, being aware of this, 
said in several of the Gospels, it's recorded, talked about what the end is going to be like. His disciples asked him. I'd like to read from Mark this morning, and if you want to turn there, you can. It's Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and I'm going to not read the entire thing about the signs of the close of the age, but I'm going to come to verse 24. And I would like to read these words as a reminder of the hope that we still are carrying in us. The expectation that we are to still have, the anticipation that we are to still have, the longing that we are to still have. Jesus said in verse 24 of Mark chapter 13, but in those days, after that tribulation, he's referring to what he just talked about, how there's gonna be a lot of tribulation. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Once again, the reality that our hope is based on that God will bring about what he has said will happen. Going on in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What do we do with all this? Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Friends, this hope, this anticipation that we have, let's not let it all go back and say it was Jesus' birth. We we can... We, we, we want to understand that hope. We want to understand how desperately we need to be saved. We understand that if Jesus had not been born, we would be left completely hopeless. Please know that. But don't leave it all back there. Recognize that there's more to what God is doing. There's more to what's coming. And let that hope and anticipation build in you so that we will stay awake, so that we don't fall asleep as we're doing our celebrations and as we're going through life and as we're chugging through our our church routines and our work routines and our home routines and all kinds of stuff that we're doing. Let that hope and anticipation that God will do what he has said he will do, which is to send Jesus Christ, the the triumphant King of kings and Lord of lords, back to us to take us home to be with him, to judge the world for all the things they've done in, in opposition to him, and to make a final judgment between right and wrong, those who honored Jesus and those who didn't, those whose names are in the book of life and those whose aren't. Some to eternal punishment apart from God and some to eternal glory with God. This is the hope that we have, that God is going to do that. Listen, it's a hope we need. Why else would you keep yourself unspotted from the world? Why else would you discipline, as Paul says, I fight, I, I discipline my body, not, not, not as those other athletes do, but I do it for spiritual reasons, to gain the crown for the hope of glory that's coming, 
for the reward that's coming, for the words I long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come in to the joy, the glory that's prepared for you. You know, when Luke recorded these words of Jesus, he said this. He said, now when these things begin to take place, listen, church, I think many of them are taking place already. Now when these things begin to take place, what does he say? Go hide. No, what does he say? Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see that cry from the very beginning, Psalm chapter 80? Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Make your face shine upon us and save us. And Jeremiah said, someday God will keep his promise and will redeem or will save his people. And Paul said in Galatians, when the time was right, God sent his son to redeem those under the law. And now we read that when we see the signs of the things coming, the, the tribulations, the shaking, the, all the stuff that's pointing to the re imminent return of Christ, we lift our heads up because we know that our redemption, our true redemption, our final redemption is very close. This is the hope. This is the advent of Jesus that we were looking for. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the promises that you give, the promises that you've kept, and the promises that we will see being kept yet to come. The reality is, God, that there's plenty of times when we get all wrapped up about which promises you've kept and what order they've been kept in and how they've been kept and whether this one has been kept or not been kept and what that exactly means. And we sometimes even lose sight of that. And I'm not, God, we just, we, we want this morning to return to the simple foundational truth that you will keep your word and our hope is based on that. The hope that we carry, the thing that allows us to keep keep ourselves unspotted by the world, to keep allegiance to Jesus Christ, to continue forging forth in the, in the face of what is growing opposition, to look at our brothers and sisters who are doing so all over the world, and to look uh, within ourselves and realize that we can't do that unless you, your glory, your spirit, your power, your grace rests in us, but that we want to do that. The reason we want to do that is to look back at the hope that was realized in Jesus Christ when he came the first time, and to look forward to the hope that we have yet to come. Oh, Jesus, we want you to come. We long for you to come. We long for you to set things right. We long for you to rescue us. We long to be with you in glory forever, for you are our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, our Master, our Good Shepherd. You gave your life for me and for us. We long to worship you in, in fullness. We say this line all the time in spirit and in truth, and I don't think we understand, Jesus, the fullness that is yet to come when we will truly worship you in your presence. Come, Lord Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would ignite in us today if it's not already there, or you would fan into flame if it's already there, or that you would feed the fire if it's been there already, but you would, you would bring this, this longing, this anticipation, this eager awaiting of the return of Christ within us. It's so easy to be, for our eyes to be glossed over, our desires to be fed by the things of the world, the timelines we have, the accomplishments we want to do, 
But the hope we have is your return, Jesus, and we want to look to you, to glorify you, to honor you, to be found complete in you. And all the while when we get there, remind of the songs we sang, all the while that we get there, if anything that happens in us, it's even then, it's you and us, Jesus. We want that to be true. Thank you. In Jesus' name.